Well, good morning. Hey, can we just tell the Clayhouse Band how much we appreciate them leading us in worship this morning? That was great. You know, we have one of the greatest worship teams in America here, and uh, every once in a while, Lance and the team have a week off, and we're so thankful for the Clayhouse Band uh, stepping in and filling uh, filling in so well. Uh, Last week, we talked about bitterness and long-term anger and hostility and how it's destructive in a person's life. We talked about how when you harbor bitterness in your life towards somebody else, it will eventually take control of your life. And this week, we're going to kind of talk about something that sort of piggybacks onto that, because we're going to talk about how to make peace when somebody hurts you. And see, I think, and I could be wrong, but I think that a lot of folks just flat out don't know how to make peace when somebody hurts them. I mean, statistics seem to bear that out. I mean, even, you know, when we talk just generically in the workplace, we have um, some statistics that would say that somewhere between 60 and 80 percent of difficulties in the workplace stem from interrelational conflicts. Uh, That's a pretty substantial number. 25 to 40 percent, we're told, of the average manager's time at work is spent dealing with interpersonal conflicts. Folks, that's one to two work days out of a regular work week. And those of y'all that are out here in management, you know that that's not a, that, that could even be a conservative number. Conflict is debilitating. We've got folks that are dreading going to work in the morning because they know when they get there, there's somebody that there's been some sort of long-term hostility between them and the other person, and they don't want to go there and experience that. There's people that frankly dread going home at the end of the workday because at home there's somebody that there's been some long-term hostility between them and the other person. And that long-term conflict is debilitating. And you might have listened to the message last week and said, you know, yeah, I understand what Mark was talking about, about having a pet in the basement, pet anger that ends up becoming a monster and and controlling my life. And I'm dealing with that because somebody's hurt me, and I really don't know how to appropriate a good response to that. But And I know you're going to talk about peace, and that's great. But you know what? If, If you knew how complicated my situation was, you wouldn't be telling me I should make peace in my situation. Because, see, my, my situation is intensely complicated. It's very complex. And I wouldn't even, you know, you might be saying, Jonathan, I don't even, I wouldn't have time to tell you all the factors that play into my situation that, that make it difficult for me to make peace. Can I tell you in love that it's always complicated? It's never easy. Conflict is always complicated. Talk to a policeman or a policewoman whose job every day is to to help sort out conflict and ask them. There's at least one story for every person involved, and sometimes there's more stories than there are people. And all the time, any kind of conflict you run into is going to be very messy. We're going to talk about a story this morning about conflict between two brothers. And we're going to talk about... um, the, the nature of the complexity of their conflict. I want to just kind of tell you right off the bat, we've got kind of a long narrative, so we're going to run through it pretty quickly. If I'll talk fast, if you guys will listen fast, we'll get through it fast, okay? we got two brothers. These guys go way, way back up the family line of the royal family in Israel. These guys are twins. And, and y'all may have experienced this in your family, but it seems a lot like sometimes when you have siblings that are born really close together, they couldn't be any more different personality-wise. You notice that? These guys are very much like that. So I'm just going to kind of give you a quick personality sketch of these two guys. Esau is, is the older brother, and Esau was his dad's favorite. They hung out. 
they were tight. He was kind of a good old boy. He liked to hunt. He liked to fish. He liked to just hang out. He didn't like to think real far in the future. He's kind of a live for right now kind of guy. Just liked to have a good time. Probably a fun guy to be around. If he was here this morning, he probably would have pulled into the parking lot with a 4x4, a lift kit, and Flowmasters on the back end. You know, he, he just liked to have a good time. And, and really, uh, I think if, if I had to be friends with Jacob or Esau, I think Esau would be the one I'd want to be friends with. Because he seems to me like he's a pretty easygoing kind of guy. Jacob, on the other hand, is, is very different. Jacob is a mama's boy. He stays at home. Uh, he's the kind of guy that uh, would like to stay at home, watch HGTV and Food Network all day. Um, he was kind of button-down type. Um, and he was, uh, now we know he was a man's man. I mean, he worked 14 years to marry the love of his life. I mean, the guy was, I mean, but he just had a very different personality type than Esau. But one thing about Jacob, remember how I said Esau was kind of easygoing, fun guy, nice guy to be around. Jacob, on the other hand, everybody knew, you don't turn your back on Jacob. He's tricky. You never know what he's going to do. He's a manipulator. He takes situations and manipulates them to get his way. And Jacob was the kind of guy that everybody just knew. You had to train your eyes to make sure no matter what you were doing, you didn't leave him alone with something that you really wanted. Now Esau was fortunate because he was in the right place at the right time. You ever know somebody who gets something that you didn't get just because they happened to be in the right place at the right time? Esau, because he was born first, he got two things that Jacob would never have. First off, he got something called the birthright. Now the birthright... Um, was the spiritual blessing of the leadership of the family. So Esau, for being born first, got this spiritual blessing that he was the head of the family. Now Esau doesn't care much about that because Esau doesn't care much about spiritual things. Uh, that was one thing. The other thing that Esau got for just being the firstborn was he got the blessing, is what the scriptures tell us. It's really the inheritance. It's spiritual and monetary, but Esau knows that the blessing has dollar signs attached. So when people talked about the birthright, Esau just kind of yawned. But when people talked about the blessing, Esau's ears perked up because the blessing translated into fishing boats and four by fours and a house on the lake. He was concerned about the blessing. Let me just tell you how tricky, let me just tell you how tricky Jacob is. Esau's been out hunting. Maybe he stayed out a little longer than he should have. Maybe he didn't eat a big enough breakfast that morning. I don't know what the case is, but as he's coming back, he's very, very hungry. Now, Esau's a bit of a drama king in this story because he's decided on his way back to the house that he's starving to death. Now, my hunch is he probably did eat breakfast that morning, but he is really hungry. He's on his way back, and between the house and Esau is Jacob, and Jacob is sitting there. You know, I told you he watches the Food Network. He's sitting there making his emerald bean soup there on the way back, and Esau catches up with him and says, hey man, I'm starving to death. You need to give me some of that soup. And Jacob said, fine, I'll give you some soup. Sure, you trade me your birthright. Boy, that's a big deal. The spiritual authority, the spiritual authority being the head of the family, you trade me that for this soup and we're even. But remember, Esau doesn't care much about spiritual things. So he makes a deal. He makes the trade. Now Jacob is the spiritual head of the family. And the only people involved in this transaction are Jacob, Esau, and God, because this is a spiritual blessing. And so God said, Esau, you don't want it? Fine, I'll give it to Jacob. Jacob was tricky. But really, that was only one of two things, and Jacob wanted it all. Jacob really, really crosses the line at this point. There comes a time, Isaac's getting old, he's the dad. He's going blind, and he thinks to himself, I don't know when I'm going to die, 
so be- before I die, I need to get Esau in here and bless Esau because who knows what will happen if I don't bless Esau at this point. So he calls Esau in. He says, here's the deal. I want you to go out hunting, um, go bring back some game, cook it the way I like, come in, I'll eat it, and then I'll bless you, and the blessing deal will be done. Well, Esau's been waiting for this moment, so he runs out the back door and goes hunting. All the time that Isaac is telling Esau what to do, remember I told you Jacob's a mama's boy? Mama's listening in. She knows that Jacob wants it all, and she goes to Jacob and says, hey, here's your chance. Here's what we'll do. You go out to the pen where we keep the goats, and you kill a couple of those goats, and you bring them in, we'll cook them, we'll take them to your dad, you'll get the blessing. Because he's blind, he won't know the difference. And Jacob, he's a relatively smart guy, and he knows that Esau and him are fairly different. Uh, He said, Mom, Esau's a very hairy guy, and I'm smooth, and Esau smells And I smell good. And he says, I don't think in one day I can overcome both of those differences. So she says, you know, we can we can work out that. We can find a way around that. He's like, she's like, we'll take the skin of the goats and we'll attach it to your skin on your arms and your neck. Now all I can figure is Esau had to be really hairy. That's all I can figure. She said, we'll attach the skin of the goat to your arms and to your neck. And if your dad happens to reach out and try to feel you, he'll feel the hair of the goat and he'll think it's Esau. And she said, we'll take some of Esau's clothes and we'll put Esau's clothes on you. And if he smells you, he'll know that it's Esau. And then you'll get the blessing and it'll be done because once he blesses you, he can't, he can't bless Esau. So we pick the story up. Genesis 27, verse 18 This is Jacob going into his dad's room. He went to his father and said, My father, yes, he said, which son are you? Jacob answered his father, I'm your firstborn son, Esau. I did what you told me. Come now, sit up and eat of my game so you can give me your personal blessing. Isaac said, so soon? How did you get it so quickly? Now look how low a person will slip when they're trying to trick somebody. Because your God cleared the way for me. Isaac said, come, come close, son. Let me touch you. Are you really my son Esau? So Jacob moved close to his father Isaac. Isaac felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He didn't recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's. But as he was about to bless him, he pressed him. You're sure you are my son Esau? Yes, I am. Isaac said, bring the food so I can eat of my son's game and give you my personal blessing. Jacob brought it to him, and he ate. He also brought him wine, and he drank. Then Isaac said, come close, son, and kiss me. He came close and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his clothes. And finally, he blessed him. Man, you thought identity theft started with the internet. No, Jacob was the original identity fraud. He violated Esau's identity. He snuck in. Remember, Esau and his dad were tight. He snuck in between him and his dad and took something. Let me just run down. I made a little list here of the deceptions that had to take place just to make this work. Deception number one, he went and got fast food while his brother was out trying to catch the real deal. Number two, he broke into Esau's closet and dressed up in Esau's clothes. Three, he put goat skin on himself so he'd be hairy like his brother. Four, when Isaac asked him the first time, he lied outright and said he was Esau. Five, he lied about how he got the food. Six, Isaac asked two more times, are you really Esau? And Jacob confirms the lie. And seven, he gave his father a deceptive kiss to seal the deal. You ever been violated by somebody? Somebody doesn't respect your personal space? 
Jacob broke into Esau's closet and took his clothes. Jacob went and took the two things out of, out of the life that Esau had. He was an easygoing guy. He didn't really want to have to work for anything long term. He had two things that he got for no other reason than he was the firstborn. And they were the two things, and probably the blessing specifically, meant more to him than anything else. And his brother had snuck in and took them both. Well, the scene gets really uncomfortable now because Esau shows up. Remember, he's out hunting all this time. He comes back in with the food. We pick this up in Genesis 27, verse 30. And then right after Isaac had blessed Jacob and Jacob had left, Esau showed up from the hunt. He also had prepared a hearty meal. He came to his father and said, let my father get up and eat of his son's game that he may give me his personal blessing. His father Isaac said, and who are you? Man, that's the moment your stomach feels like a rock. You walk in, you've done all the things your dad told you to do. Esau hasn't done anything wrong at this point. He went out and did what his dad told him to do. He comes back in with the food. He's prepared. He's worked hard. He's ready to receive the blessing. He's anticipated getting this blessing all his life. He walks in and says, here I am. I'm here with the food. And his dad says, and who are you again? I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac started to tremble. Shaking violently, he said, Then who hunted game and brought it to me? I finished the meal just now before you walked in, and I blessed him. He's blessed for good. Esau, hearing his father's words, sobbed violently and most bitterly and cried to his father, My father, can't you also bless me? Esau's an easygoing guy, but right now he's sobbing. This is not his personality. He's not a crier, but he's crying now because... Somebody in his family, somebody who was blood relative, had ruined his life. See, the birthright was a trade. I think I can, I can give Jacob credit for that. You know, regardless of what you think about that, and I do think he, I think it was tricky that he did it that way, but no matter how you look at it, that was a trade. Esau said, fine, I'll trade you my birthright. But no matter what value system we come from, we can all agree that Jacob stole the blessing. He stole the inheritance. And nobody in this room, I think, would say that was an okay thing to do. All of us would agree that was a terrible thing to do. And Esau and Jacob have a rift now. Jacob's mom hears Esau say something. I want to read to you what Esau decides to do. Genesis 27, 41. Esau seethed. That seething word is that bitterness that, that ends up growing out of control. Esau seethed in anger against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He brooded, the time for mourning my father's death is close, and then I'll kill my brother Jacob. See, we all know this, and a lot of us are afraid to admit it, but the truth is that when we get really angry at somebody, the seeds of destruction are in our heart. We might not be planning to kill somebody like Esau was planning to kill Jacob, but in our heart we know if we could destroy the other person for what they've done to us, we would do it. I mean, there's husbands and wives in this room, and the seeds are in the heart. It's not something that you, you, you intellectualize and you think about it all the way through, but somewhere in the seeds of your heart is this notion that if there was some way I could destroy my husband for what he's done to me, I would. If there was some way I could destroy my wife for what she's done to me, I would. If there was some way I could destroy my boss for what he's done to me, I would. And that anger grows out of control until it takes control. 
Jacob's mom hears Esau say that, and she tells Jacob, you better get out of Dodge, or none of this stuff's going to mean anything to you anyway, because you're going to be dead. So Jacob runs far away, and he spends a long time far away and distanced from Esau. You know, there's a funny thing about long-term conflict between people, a big wall of hostility that, that, that exists between people over time. And that is that eventually both parties will end up with a tremendous sense of unfinished business. There's a sense that, that something isn't right. Something needs to be taken care of. And the reason for that is there's a part of Jacob and a part of Esau that will always be tied to the past until somehow some sort of resolution is achieved. Some sort of solution happens so that they can both move out of the past. Jacob and Esau, until the situation is resolved, are both anchored back there. And Jacob knows this. He knows, because he's a smart guy, he knows that at some point he's going to be confronted with his past. And see, all of us know that here. Even if we're the person who's been hurt or we're the person who's hurt somebody, we know that eventually the past is going to come to confront us and we're going to have to either resolve or do something else because eventually the past will come face to face with you. So Jacob decides to make a preemptive strike. He waves the white flag. He starts sending messengers, uh, messengers to Esau. Now here's the deal. We have a lot of reason to believe that Esau had no clue what the messengers were trying to tell him. But he starts sending messengers to Esau saying, I want to make peace, I want to make peace. And here's the deal. There were no cell phones, Twitter, Facebook. There, there was no way of getting the message exact verbatim, but I don't know who Jacob was sending out to take this message back and forth, uh, because there was a kind of communication breakdown that occurred. When the guy got back to Jacob, he said, well, I told your brother Esau what you said. Esau's coming back here to meet you, and he's bringing an army of 400 men with him. No other details. That's it. Esau's coming to meet you. He's bringing an army of 400 men. Now, remember, the last time Jacob heard anything from Esau was that Esau was out to kill him. Now, I don't know a lot about physiological responses, but I would be guessing right about this point, Jacob's experiencing a decent spike in blood pressure. I don't know. That's just what I think. He starts bracing for impact. In fact, this is interesting. He takes the people that he loves the most and he puts them farthest back in the, in the traveling group that he's with. Because he thinks if Esau gets here and, and I'm in the front and, and, and he starts just hacking away and, and destroying people, maybe by the time he gets way back to the back of the group, maybe by then he'll be calmed down and he won't take out his vengeance on the people I love the most. This tells you how afraid Jacob really was. I mean, he was scared. You ever experienced kind of a moment of brilliance? from somebody you didn't expect it from? You know, somebody that you didn't think was really maybe the sharpest knife in the drawer, maybe somebody who wasn't just real brilliant, and they say something and you go, wow, where did that come from? You know, your, your teenage son is, is, he spends every dollar he ever gets, never pays attention to saving anything, and all of a sudden one of his grandparents drops a $4,000 check on him, you know, I've been saving this till your 16th birthday. Here you go. Don't spend it all in one place. And you think, oh, no. All right, son, what car dealership are we going to? And he says this. He says, you know, Mom, Dad, I've been thinking. I really ought to be saving for college. I think we should put it in a savings account. Are you our son? 
Sometimes you get a moment of brilliance from someone you least expected it from. And I got to tell you, that's what happens here with Esau. Because I'm expecting Esau to just hack his little brother to little bits. Finish this deal. Or I'm expecting him to tell Jacob, okay, I want everything back you stole from me with interest. But what happens in this confrontation between Esau and Jacob is huge. I want to read this to you. This is from Genesis 33. Then Jacob went on ahead. As he approached his brother, he bowed to the ground seven times before him. Watch this. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. And they both wept. I wasn't expecting that. This isn't just a a single tear rolling down the cheek of manly men when they figure out they've made a mistake. This is sobbing, wailing, crying, saying, this is too much. It should be over. It's time to stop. Skip down to verse 8. And what were all the flocks and herds I met as I came? See, Jacob had been sending Esau all these gifts. Esau had no clue what they were. Esau asked, and he said, what are all these flocks and herds I met as I came? Jacob replied, they're a gift, my Lord, to ensure your friendship. My brother, I have plenty, Esau answered. Keep what you have for yourself. Skip down to verse 12. Well, Esau said, let's be going. I will lead the way. Moment of unexpected brilliance. It's a light bulb moment. And you think, where did Esau come up with that? And why? But most importantly, how do I do that? I mean, that's what I see when I read this story. I think to myself, Esau had been hurt. He had lost everything that mattered to him because of this person. And yet he still made peace with him. How can I do it the way that he did it? Well, there's three statements that Esau made that we need to take and apply in our... I'm going to tell you how we can make peace when somebody hurts us. If you have something to write this down on, these are three statements that will help you make peace when somebody hurts you. First one is this. I'm ready to stop fighting. I'm ready to stop fighting. Now, somebody's going, Jonathan, I'm looking, I'm looking. I don't see that in there. I don't see where Esau says I'm ready to stop fighting. He didn't have to say it. His attitude said, I'm ready to stop fighting. See, that's the thing. When you, when you tell somebody you're ready to end the conflict, they're going to be looking more at your attitude than your words. See, if you go, I'm ready to stop fighting, doggone it, nobody's going to buy that. But when Esau ran to his brother and embraced him and cried, It was a sign, it was an attitude, a motion of the heart that said, I'm ready to stop the fighting. And why? Here's the the real light bulb moment here. Esau figured out, as long as this fight's going on, nobody wins. As long as this fight's going on, nobody's winning. See, that's what we want. When somebody hurts us, we want to win. We talked about that last week. We want to chase them and then plant the flag on that person and say, I've conquered them. They took something of mine, and I don't care. Maybe I didn't get it back, but I destroyed that person, and now we're even. Can I propose to you this morning there is no such thing as even? And that when the fight's going on, nobody's winning. Esau recognized that they were missing out on things because of this conflict. I mean, Esau met Jacob's wife for the first time, met his kids for the first time. He hadn't met uh, 
his family. He hadn't met his servants. He had missed out on the relationships that he would have been able to participate in. He could have celebrated those moments when those kids were born. He could have celebrated with his brother over great times and cried with him over bad times, but he'd missed it all because there was that rift, and the rift was causing him to both lose. Esau knew that innocent people were getting hurt by this. I mean, here's the deal. Yes, you have two main characters who are fighting with each other. But in each of those people's camps, the the acidity of that anger and resentment had spilled over. Remember last week we talked about how it's like a dye that gets in a fabric and you can't get it out. And those emotions permanently infected the people with whom Jacob and Esau were closest. And so he said, I'm going to be the adult and stand up and say, it's time to quit fighting. Here's the deal. There are marriages today right now that are falling apart, perhaps even in this room. And nobody yet is prepared to step up and be the adult and say, I'm ready to stop fighting. We're losing too much. We're missing out on great moments. We're missing out on closeness. People in our families are hurting because of the conflict. And there's not a good reason for it. And at the end of the day, I don't win. You don't win. And until conflict is resolved... None of us are winning. Somebody's got to say, I'm ready to stop fighting. How do you do that? Well, Esau did it in a personal way. Did you notice that? Jacob's sending messengers. I'm assuming it's because he didn't want to get his head chopped off, but he was sending messengers. You know, calling and saying, I want to make peace. I want to make peace. Here's what Esau could have done. Esau could have, been, could have still been a good guy in our terms if Esau had sent a message back to Jacob that said, fine, you stay on your side of the world. I'll stay on my side of the world. I won't kill you. I won't come after you. Believe me, be. We still would say he was an okay guy if he did that. But that wasn't good enough. Esau knew if conflict was going to get resolved, he needed to do it in a personal way. I know surely this hasn't happened to anybody in this room because this is a terrible thing. But can you imagine you have two, two parents. And one parent, the mom says to Susie, Susie, will you please tell your dad that dinner is at 5.30? And it's chicken. The dad says to Susie, well, you tell mom I can't be there till 6 o'clock. And he's, she says, well, Susie, will you ask dad how he feels about cold chicken? You know, you've got this kind of, because here's what conflict does. Conflict makes us be impersonal. Have you noticed that? Conflict drives us to be impersonal. I shouldn't tell this story, but I'm going to anyway. There's a story about a husband and a wife who are fighting. You know, who knows over what. And fellas, he did what we do best. He withdrew. He quit talking. He gave her the silent treatment, squared his shoulders back, and gave her her, his best Clint Eastwood angry glance. She thought he looked like a nearsighted guy going to the optometrist. And he just didn't talk to her all night long. And this, you know, ladies, this is something that'll really get to you. You know, he won't talk. He goes to bed. You know, she gets done with her extensive grooming rituals, walks out of the bathroom, and sees this sees this note on her pillow. Now, he's already snoring, and this note on the pillow says this. It says, I have a very important meeting at 7 o'clock in the morning. My alarm's set for 5.30. If it doesn't go off, please wake me up because I have to be at this meeting. He wakes up the next morning at 7.30, realizes the alarm didn't go off. He's just livid, but he looks over at her pillow, and there's another note. And here's what it says. Wake up, wake up. It's 5.30. What, you want to miss your meeting? (laughs) 
It's what conflict does. It makes us be impersonal. And here's what, here's what Esau recognized. He recognized that unless he approached Jacob in a personal way, real peace couldn't happen. You can't make peace through Facebook. can't make peace through friends. can't send messengers. You want to make peace, you have to make it in a personal way. Number two, remember the first one is I'm ready to stop fighting. Number two is you don't need to make this up to me. Jacob had been sending gifts, and here's what Esau said in verse 9. My brother, I have plenty, Esau answered. Keep what you have for yourself. You don't have to make this up to me. Here's the deal. A lot of us, we forgive with an expectation of something on the back end. Do you know what I mean? We, we, we forgive somebody, but we say, you better straighten up. You better get in line. I'll forgive you, but you're going to have to shape up. You know what? Forgiveness with an expectation on the back end is not forgiveness. That's a settlement. If your credit card company were to call you, if say you had a, a large amount of credit card debt, your credit card debt company called you and said, hey, we know times are tough, we know the economy's bad, we're going to make a settlement with you. We're going to cut your debt by so much and make a payment plan that you can live with and we're going to get this debt thing taken care of. And that's the settlement. If they were to call you up and say, hey, you know what, it's, um, it's party day here at the credit card company and we've just decided, you know, your name came up in the numbers that we pulled out of the hat and we've decided you don't owe us anything anymore. Now that that's forgiveness. But see, we recognize that when it comes to credit card companies and mortgages. We don't recognize that when it comes to forgiveness. Because we walk in saying we forgive somebody but an expectation on the back end. And Esau knew that would never work. You can't expect something on the back end. This would have been the perfect time, honestly, in my, in my estimation, for Esau to demand back from Jacob what he took. I mean, he stole it. This would have been a perfect time for Esau to say, I want everything you took from me plus interest. And Jacob was just sending him some small gifts. But even then, he said, you can keep it. You don't have to try to make this up to me. Third thing, the first thing was, I'm ready to stop fighting. The second thing is, you don't need to try to make this up to me. The third thing is, let's move forward. I'll make the first move. Let me read you this verse 12 here out of our passage. Well, Esau said, let's be going. I will lead the way. There's two statements there. The first one is let's be going. Now that, that phrase comes from a, a Hebrew slang term that had just come to mean let's leave. But, but even more important than that, the term came from an idea that was very familiar to someone like Esau and Jacob because they lived in tents. And the slang term had come from the idea of pulling up the tent stakes, breaking down the tents, and moving on. In fact, the term literally means to pull up the, pull up the stakes. It's very important. Remember how I said that as long as this was not resolved, there was a part of Jacob and a part of Esau that was anchored to the past. And until something happened to break that loose, they would always be anchored in the past. And here's my concern this morning. I'm concerned there might be marriages this morning in this room that are anchored in the past. I'm concerned there's folks this morning who might be in this room and you have an issue at work and that issue keeps you anchored in the past. And what's happening is the past is spoiling the present and it's absolutely ruining your opportunity for a great future. That's what the past does. And what Esau was saying was, hey, it's time for both of us to leave the place that we've been. See, the relationship was in a bad place. And he was saying, it's time to take this relationship to a new place. Can't live in the past anymore. 
The past is destructive. And anybody in this room knows that. When, when you've brought up perhaps the past in an argument with someone, you find out very quickly that the past, all it serves to do is destroy what's going on right now. Lots of folks make a lot of progress in marriage. But here, see, here's the deal. They make a lot of progress in working on their marriage, but they're still so anchored in the past that eventually the past still comes out and the past takes away from everything good in the present. So how do you get... How do you get beyond that? Well, Esau said, let's pull up the stakes. Let's pull up the stakes. Let's go take the tents down. Let's quit living in the past. And here's what he said. Not only are we going to take those tents down and move out of the past, but he said, I'm going to be the one to make the first step. See, in relationships, we kind of wait for that moment to see who's going to drop their weapon first. You know what I mean? Kind of standing there. All right, we're going to move forward. Just waiting. You go ahead. That's kind of how we do it. What Esau was saying, I'm not going to wait for Jacob to make the first step. If Jacob never makes the first step, that's fine with me. Here I go. I'm making the first step. Because Esau wasn't ready to let the past define his future. Now see, that's what's so huge. This isn't about the other person. It is partially about the other person, but on top of that, it's about you. And the question is, how do you feel about letting the past Define your future. You know, the truth is, those moments of brilliance, they tend to be what shape our lives. And and more than that, they tend to be what define our lives, and they leave a legacy. You know, it's funny, I... um, because of being in the ministry, I've been around a lot of funerals. You know what I hear a lot of at funerals when people get up and they talk? I hear about moments of brilliance. Because that's what grandkids remember. That's what kids remember. That's what sticks. I wasn't expecting them to do that, but they came and they did it. And wow, look what it did. And I think this was Esau's legacy. He was a good old boy. He had the four by four with the lift kit. He just liked to roll on from week to week. Didn't want to make, here's the deal. Esau didn't want to make a huge imprint on, the, on history books. That wasn't his gig. Esau just wanted to kind of enjoy life. But see, there was this moment that made this bright and shining illustration in the Bible. And here's what's so huge. This was the moment when Esau, a guy who was least likely, demonstrated the character of Jesus Christ. That's huge. Esau, the guy that didn't care much about spiritual things. Esau, the guy that wasn't sensitive to the things that meant the most. He was the guy that all of a sudden came out and demonstrated the character of Christ. Because see, that's what Christ does for us. He forgives us. And when he comes and he forgives, he ends the conflict. He says, I'm ready to stop the conflict. Not only that, but you don't have to make it up to me. And on top of that, I want our relationship to move forward. And so when you see somebody who really, honestly, truly makes peace, what you're seeing is that person at that moment, that moment of brilliance is displaying the character of Christ. And no matter who you are, there's power in that for your marriage, for your work relationship. My heart is broken for folks who are scared to go to work because they don't know what's going to happen when they get there and they have to deal with their boss. Hey, the truth is the time to make peace is now. Demonstrate Christ to your boss. Demonstrate Christ to your wife. And how do you do that? You say, I don't want to be in the past anymore. And in your presence, here's what Esau said, in your presence, in front of you, right now, I'm going to make the first step. And I don't know what that would look like for you, but you do. 
you know that you could make that first step. The thing is your gut tells you not to. But if you want to be like Christ, that is what he calls you to do in the presence of the other person. When they've hurt you, the person with the most power to make peace is the person that's been the most hurt. And that person can step forward and make the first step and revolutionize a relationship, revolutionize a workplace. Hey, absolutely change a marriage. Why? Because that person was willing to demonstrate Christ. And there's power in that. So can I ask you a question? When will your shining moment be? And what will it look like? Maybe it should be right after the 9.30 service at New Spring when a husband tells his wife, it's time to stop fighting. Maybe it'd be tomorrow, or <laughs> it's Memorial Weekend, maybe it'd be Tuesday when you go to work and, and you talk with that person that you've been avoiding and you tell them, I'm ready to stop fighting, you don't have to make it up to me, and let's move forward. But when that moment hits, watch the power, because that person will see Christ in you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to experience your grace and to appropriate your grace and to show others how you've forgiven us by the way that we forgive them. Thank you for your word and its clear lesson for us this morning. As we're praying together, someone in this room might might be thinking to themselves, I heard you mention how Christ has forgiven me and I want to experience that kind of forgiveness. I know that I'm missing out on a relationship with Christ and I want to have that in my life. I want to experience that forgiveness. If you want to be a part of Christ's family, if you want to, if you want to experience God's grace and his forgiveness, you can say this prayer with me. It's not a magic prayer, but I'm going to pray it in little snippets. You can repeat it after me. And if you mean it from your heart, God will save you. Here's that prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. I know that I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. Please forgive me and come into my heart. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me.